Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. Yes, we're happy to be with you again. Thanks for tuning in. And if you are new... <laughs> To this podcast. Thanks for tuning in for the first time. That's right. Uh, Christopher and I are so happy to answer questions sent in by listeners. And um, there is a form that you can get to from our podcast to submit your own question. Please know that we, we can't keep answering questions if we don't keep receiving them. So thank you to all those who send in questions. And a word to the patrons of the TOB Institute. Remember that you can Get priority as a patron in submitting a question by going to your patron website and submitting your question there. We always answer the questions of a patron first, and there's a much smaller pool of patron questions. So there's a better chance your question will be answered uh, as a patron. little incentive to support the work of the TOB Institute. That's right. And we're thankful, so thankful for all all the questions we receive. Sometimes people ask about our homeschooling, and I, I'm cautious because I don't want people to think, oh, I just want to do whatever the Wests do, because <laughs> that is not the idea of homeschooling at all. Homeschooling is about, in part, knowing your own family, your own children, their needs, your gifts. You know, there's so much personalization yeah. Yeah, to yeah. homeschooling i you know that there's no way what we do would be great for every other family um but we do homeschool our kids our, our last two students are finishing ninth and seventh grade right now at the time of this recording and all all but one of the five have spent some time in public school as that's well that's true that's yes yeah, so it hasn't been exclusively homeschooling right. although Every year since, when was that? 2002, I think, when I started. You know, we've you have been always homeschooling been homeschooling somebody. someone. So that's 20 that's years. 20 years. Wow. That's a long time. That is a long time. Um, and I have a personality that just kind of likes to research and look into what materials or different approaches so that it hasn't been one standard way to do it all those 20 years, not at all. And I'm at that stage uh, in my finishing up this particular homeschool year where I'm just kind of searching for answers to a few subject areas. What what should we do? What will work? And, and I sense in myself some of my uncertainty comes from having not been pleased with how some things went in the past school mm -hmm. year. So you can't keep going down that path. You got to find a new direction. So um, yeah, that in particular with our daughter and history, it's just been a rough school year. Like I've, I don't know, tried multiple different resources, multiple. That's not my typical. Typically, I figure out what we're going to do and we just stick with it. Um, but when a student is just having a really hard time and crying out, like, can't this be different? Then I'm trying to find a way to do that. And, oh, I'm, you could pray for me. You could pray for me, listeners. And for my, I mean, it's just a little thing. It's a, all will be well. But it, it can be times of struggle that I pray will bear good fruit and some better, uh, you know, results in the, in the next school year in that regard. It's, it's a great honor, and I'm very grateful. I, 
I know that I probably am a little bit spoiled at this point, having only older students who are fairly good, you know, willing students at that. So thank you, Lord, for all of that. Wendy, you have done an amazing job homeschooling our kids. And I, I it's really striking me that it's been 20 years of your life mm. that you've been doing it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it, it's it's fulfilling. You know, when I think about, oh, if I had to go get a job outside the home, like maybe being a reading tutor for young children at a school mm. would be a use of my skills. I've spent yeah, a lot of time doing you've that. You got the skills, <laughs> right? You have certainly you know, acquired I, those skills. I know the rewards of just taking taking it slowly, being encouraging, having the students learn something new. It's beautiful. So, I'm grateful. You have any updates for us from the TOB Institute? TOB Institute. We have a full slate of summer courses coming up, which I'll remind you of again. We have the TOB one in June is full. But we have an online TOB1 at the end of June, which you can register for. And there's no limit to the students who can take the online courses. And I just want to say something about the difference of those. Yeah, please. The uh, in-person courses um, take place in Pennsylvania, and they are a week long. Five days, five and a half days, yeah. Um, Whereas the online courses, you... Give, are given access to video recordings of those in-person courses um, for a little bit longer period of time. Um, but they do include an in-person component where you have question a li- and answer. a live component, a not, live, a, not, yeah, an not in-person, person, right? Yeah, via Zoom, we do live Q&As yeah, with how, the online How many students. times do they do uh, that? About three times we get, over the course of two weeks, we get on. Yeah with the students for live Q&A. Yeah. Those are always really fun. I, I, I really enjoy doing those Zoom Q&A sessions with students from around the world. Sometimes we'll have people in the Philippines or Australia who are waking up at like two in the morning because they're so excited to be on these oh my goodness. live Q&As with students from around the world. It's really fun. Yeah. So just to explain a little bit more about the difference between yeah, those. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. Then we have um, an in-person course, five and a half days from July 10th to the 15th, which is the Love and Responsibility course, that marvelous work of John Paul II that he wrote in the late 50s, published in the early 60s. It's really the philosophical foundation for the theology of the body. I'll be teaching that with Jeanette Clark for the very first time. Really excited about that. So check out that link. And then the writings of John Paul II on marriage, family, and gender, beyond what he wrote in the theology of the body, that is being taught by Bill Dunahee the first week of August. And all of that you can learn more about by clicking the link in the show notes for our mm-hmm. courses. Hmm. Are you ready for a question? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. This is from a patron named Christabel. Oh, Christabel. I think I know Christabel from New York. Oh, did I just give her away? <laughs> I don't think there... Well, there could be another Christabel out there. Of course there could. This is what Christabel says. You often speak of agony and ecstasy. Am I correct to think this is related to times of desolation and consolation? Can you elaborate on the relationship between these? I often feel my life is a constant dance between desolation and consolation. But I will admit it's exhausting. I found it hard to enjoy the blessings in my life because the troubles simply overtake all the good that is happening. Am I doing something wrong? Mm. Christabel, you are doing nothing wrong. I mean, 
well, let me back up. We're all doing something wrong, right? <laughs> right? We're fallen human beings. We do stuff that's wrong. But the fact that you are oscillating between consolation and desolation is not a sign that you are doing something wrong. That's how I want to say that. That is a normal part of the Christian journey, that dance between consolation and desolation. Is it the same as what the saints call the prayer of agony and the prayer of ecstasy? I think they, they are related, but they're not the same necessarily. So the prayer of agony is when we are entering through our life circumstances into the real sorrows of Jesus. And you might say the, the consummate moment of the prayer of agony is Christ on the cross exclaiming, my God, my God, why, why have you abandoned me? We all enter into that agony in our lives. And this is something I heard years ago from the person who I go to retreat on, usually about once a year, I, I go to this very wise, mystical Monsignor for a retreat, and I was in a real prayer of agony. This was maybe 15 years ago or more. Real prayer of agony. And he said to me, and he said, let me summarize to you the teaching of St. Teresa of Avila, or paraphrase it to you. He said, Teresa of Avila teaches us that God teaches us courage in the prayer of agony because we need even more courage to endure the prayer of ecstasy. What is the prayer of ecstasy? The prayer of ecstasy is that union with Jesus, if the prayer of agony is our union with Jesus in his sorrows, in his passion, in his dying, in his feeling abandoned by God, the prayer of ecstasy is our union with Jesus in his resurrected glory, in his, in his experience of profound union with the Father. So here, here is a paradox. Jesus was never not in union with the Father. Even in that prayer of agony, my, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He is, he is experiencing at one and the same time this real feeling of being abandoned by the Father while at the same time being in perfect union with the Father. John Paul addresses this in his document on the new millennium, Novo Millennio Inuente, where he says, saints have not failed to consider how this is possible, that in that cry of agony from the cross, he is also simultaneously experiencing the ecstasy of being in union with the Father. And then John Paul II quotes from Therese, the little flower, who says something to the effect of, I know something of this in my own experience, of, of a, a desolation, a, a feeling of God not being present, but at the same time, a deeper knowledge in faith that I am profoundly united with the Lord. We, we could look at it this way, that if Jesus 
is with us in our cry of abandonment, mm. then guess what? We're not abandoned because mm. he's with us. And yet that doesn't erase the feeling of being abandoned. But Jesus is saying in his own cry of abandonment, we don't need to be afraid of the cry of abandonment because he's with us in it. He's with us in it. Mm -hmm. Teresa of Avila says something like, uh, the, the agonies of prayer make me moan, but the ecstasies that come at the same time almost, uh, there's a, an intermingling. She says, the ecstasies are so sweet that I, I never want it to stop. So this agony and ecstasy goes together. Again, the Lord teaches us courage in the prayer of agony because we need even more courage to endure the prayer of ecstasy. The language of consolation and desolation, if agony and ecstasy comes from the tradition of Teresa of Avila, uh, John of the Cross, and others, the, the, the language of consolation and desolation comes more from the tradition of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the, the discernment of spirits. We are offering a course at the TOB Institute in November taught by Father Timothy Gallagher, mm. who's one of the greatest experts in Ignatian spirituality in the Church today. And we're privileged to have him on our faculty. He's coming to teach a course that we call Theology of the Body and the Interior Life, mm -hmm. where we wed these principles of consolation and desolation that come from St. Ignatius with John Paul's anthropology in the theology of the body. And I would encourage you, Christabel, uh, to consider coming to this course. That I, I really believe it will help you to understand, and this is exactly where Ignatius goes. He goes right into these oscillating experiences common to every person on the journey with Christ of consolation and desolation. And he has, Ignatius gives us very pointed principles for what to do and what not to do when we are in a state of desolation or consolation. And I'll, I'll hold out if for some reason you're not able to come to this course and you want to learn more, Father Timothy Gallagher's book, which I believe, I'll just pull it off my shelf here, uh, Father Timothy Gallagher, The Discernment of Spirits, An Ignatian Guide for Everyday Living by Father Timothy M. Gallagher. Uh, we'll have a link to this book in the show notes. Anybody interested in entering more deeply into these Ignatian principles of what to do in consolation, what not to do in consolation, what to do in desolation, what not to do in desolation, going through this course several times and having read this book by Father Timothy Gallagher has helped me tremendously to realize I'm not crazy, this is part of the journey, everyone on the journey goes through this, and I have solid principles as to what to do and what not to do. And, and here's one that just stands out. I think it's one of the most important principles of Ignatian discernment. When you are in a state of desolation, do not change any of your spiritual practices. If, if you're committed every day to, say, a half an hour of prayer, and you're in a state of desolation, there is a strong temptation to say, I'm just not feeling it today, I'm, I'm, 
I'm just not going to pray today. Well, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. One of the most important principles of Ignatian discernment when you're in a state of desolation is maintain your, your spiritual practices. Don't make any change. And, and that's a very important way of kind of fending off the desolation, right? Not to pray in a state of desolation will uh, extend the desolation, mm, yeah. right? So keep to your spiritual practices when you're in desolation, and the desolation will pass. You can count on it. The, the Lord uh, does not leave. He, he, he places us in this desolation for reasons that we can't quite understand. Uh, and part of it, saints talk about it, is a, a, a stretching of our faith, a growth of faith, and an, a stretching of our desire for the Lord. When we are in a state of desolation, we are yearning for the consolation, and that yearning for the consolation stretches our hearts. Uh, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. I, I, you know, we don't have time to get into all of these principles, but please do pick up this book, Christabel, and if you're able, strongly consider coming to this course in November that we'll be offering. You can go to our course schedule, the links in the show notes, to get those specific dates. I know I myself have been so blessed. I, I have read that book. There are lots of books I can see on your shelves while I'm sitting here doing the recordings, most of which I haven't read. I have read Father Timothy Gallagher's book, and it is really insightful, helpful. So I do highly recommend that and and his course here at the Institute. I, For the sake of time, because I know there's a longer question coming up, <laughs> I don't want to say too much more, but I I am very happy if, you know that our listeners got to hear that. Great. Our next question is from a listener named Andres. I'm from Chile, and I've been listening to your podcasts for a while now. You've helped me so much to grow in my faith and understanding of God's love. I'm really thankful. I have a question that came to me while reading Luke 23, The Passion of Our Lord, when he encounters the crying women. It says, Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. I've never really understood that last part about the childless women. Is it a prophecy about our time? Is he warning them about this world full of sin? Can T.O.B. help us to better understand this part of the gospel? Bless you, Andres. Yeah, that, that's a, a bit of a conundrum, isn't it, at first reading? Uh, I do think if we read that with our TOB lenses, we, we do gain a certain insight. And let's just put those lenses on, and let's, let's explain a little bit what it means to put those lenses on. When I say put our TOB lenses on, I'm saying reading Scripture through the paradigm of our ultimate destiny being a marriage, the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage of Christ and the Church. The whole purpose of earthly marriage, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Earthly marriage is a sign of the, the supernatural marriage, the eternal marriage of Christ and the church, which means there's also a supernatural fertility, right? Grace perfects nature. There's a natural fertility and there's a fertility in the order of grace. And where's Christ going? He's going to Calvary. He's going 
to the marriage bed of the cross, to use St. Augustine's expression. And what happens on the marriage bed of the cross? A new kind of fertility is revealed. What does the new Adam say to the new Eve at the cross? He says, woman, behold your son. The beloved disciple, John, symbolizes the mystical offspring, this supernatural fertility of the mystical marriage of the new Adam and the new Eve, Christ and the church. Mary at the foot of the cross, of course, always in the flesh, she's his mother, but in the spirit, in the mystical dimensions here, she's the symbol of the church, the bride of Christ. And she becomes the mother of all of the living in a new manner. There's a new kind of fertility. And I believe Jesus is pointing to that new kind of fertility when he, when he says, can you quote that scripture again, Wendy? Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. It reminds me of a passage in the Old Testament that says, more are the children of the barren woman than of she who bore children. What Jesus here in the New Testament, I believe, is, is making a reference to that line in the Old Testament, which is a prophecy of a new kind of fertility, a super abundant fertility. Uh, think of Mother Teresa. Why do we call Mother Teresa Mother Teresa? She never bore a child, but as bride of Christ, that's what a, a religious woman is. She becomes the bride of Christ. She bore numerous spiritual children uh, beyond what we can think or imagine. The, the call, therefore, to be fruitful and multiply is super abundantly fulfilled in this new kind of spiritual fecundity. And Jesus himself describes to his disciples at the Last Supper that what they are all about to endure is similar to the pains of a woman in labor. Uh, so, so there are all kinds of layers of mystery here that I think Jesus is pointing to a new kind of fertility. If you're like me and you're not much of a theologian, you might still be going, I'm not sure I get this. <laughs> and yet I, I can say this, that there, these words of Jesus about um, wombs and, and nursing breasts touch on a certain powerful bond that I, I get that. I get that powerful bond of the, the womb and the, the nursing of the mother and child. And I, I really do feel there is a beautiful affirmation in what you're saying about an even more powerful bond in the spirit than even what we experience from our biologically, and I don't want to use that word, you know, in a way that's offensive. It's not just biological. It's whole person yes, that we yes. are mothers and uh, bonded to our children. And yet there's something beautifully hopeful about the power of Christ to speak to something that we experience and say, there's more. Yeah, there's more. There's more. That's beautiful, Wendy. And it points to the very basic principle of theology of the body, that the body and only the body, John Paul says, is capable of revealing the spiritual and the divine. The, the visible reveals the invisible. Visible Our visible bodies as male and female obviously reveal a fertility, a, a visible fertility. 
but there's an invisible fertility. There's another kind of fertility. The physical points to the spiritual. That's the key point. And when we when we put those glasses on and, and read Scripture, even puzzling things like that, that saying of Jesus can take on a new dimension and a new meaning. Our next question is from Rosie. Hello, Rosie. She says, hi, Christopher and Wendy. I'm getting married in December. Congratulations. That's awesome. During marriage prep, the priest told us that we should reflect on the nuptial blessing. Since on the wedding day, we will probably be so caught up with everything that we may totally miss it or be not be able to reflect on it. Could you please share some reflections on the nuptial blessing? I would love to hear your insights. Also, I just have to say that you two have totally changed my life. This podcast, as well as your books, Christopher, have been such a blessing. I recommend and pass them along to everyone. I feel like TOB was the missing piece to my faith all my life. Thank you for helping me find that peace. You're so welcome, Rosie. That just warms my heart to hear. And I, I love that you are taking the advice of your priest who's preparing you for the grand adventure of your sacrament. And we are certainly happy to shine a little light on the nuptial blessing and uh, share some reflections on it. So I think you, Wendy, since you knew this question was coming I printed it out, you folks. You printed it out. I found it online. I printed it out. I have it in front of me. So if I read you this blessing, which has impacted me profoundly uh, myself, and I know it has you too, Christopher, we'll just, it'll be a blessing to share it with all our listeners. If you're hearing this nuptial blessing, I kind of like that word, nuptial. Yeah, that's great. Uh, um, and you're not married, or if you're in a painful marriage, I just ask you to open your heart to just allow there to be kind of a cleansing coming from hearing. Mm, mm. This is from the heart of God for us. And it just, it can be just a beautiful gift, no matter what our circumstance in life, to see his heart. And the, the nuptial blessing, just for those who may not know what it, we're talking about, it's, it's the blessing that the priest gives the couple during the, the nuptial liturgy, when they exchange their vows and become husband and wife, this is part of the prayer of the church. So remember the church, as she prays, so she believes. So this, this prayer carries great weight. It's a liturgical prayer, liturgical blessing from the very heart of God, as you said, Wendy, and from the heart of the church, our mm -hmm. mother. It starts out, O oh God who by your mighty power created all things out of nothing. And when you had set in place the beginnings of the universe, formed man and woman in your own image, making the woman an inseparable helpmate to the man, that they might no longer be two, but one flesh, and taught that what you were pleased to make one should never be divided. Mm. Do you want to pause there or keep going? Yeah, let's, let's just press into that a little bit. So we have the themes of creation. We have the themes of the crown of creation being male and female made in the image and likeness of God. I just pause there for a minute. What does it mean that we are the crown of creation? What does it mean that we are made in the image and likeness of God? We sum up, this is straight out of the catechism, we sum up in our bodies 
all the elements of the universe. <laughs> we are right here, you and I, Wendy, sitting here talking into these microphones. We are living, breathing, talking, thinking, hydrogen and oxygen. <laughs> How is that possible? Uh, you know, we're, what our bodies are what, like 80% water or something. That's what I mean when I say we're, we're hydrogen and oxygen and other elements. We're all kinds of other elements too, but the majority of our makeup is hydrogen and oxygen. What, what? Living, breathing, talking, thinking, hydrogen, oxygen. It means there is this marriage in the human being of the spiritual and the physical. I was just reading this quote from St. Augustine where he says, the, the, the joining of spirit and matter in the human being is, is marvelous, meaning it should inspire this marvel. And it's nothing we can, in the final analysis, explain or really understand. I remember a, uh, a priest some years ago said the, the unity of body and soul in the human being is kind of like a chocolate and vanilla twisty cone <laughs> where you can, okay, that's the chocolate, that's the vanilla, but it's, it's all to, like you can't, you can't separate them out. To separate body and soul is to kill the human being, right? That's what we are. We are unity of body and soul. We are made in the image of God, this nuptial blessing says. And John Paul II gives us this marvelous development of Catholic thought when he says we image God not only as individuals, we image God also in the communion of persons which right. man and woman were called to form from the very beginning. And on this communion there descended the blessing of fertility. Be fruitful and multiply. That, that nuptial call, that call of husband and wife to, to bear new life into the world is a call to image the Trinity. Uh, we have to be careful here. God is not sexual, but in a non-sexual way, God from all eternity, the Father, is generating the Son to share with the Son this love of the Holy Spirit. And it's as if the Trinity is having a conversation amongst themselves when they say, let us, notice the plural there in the book of Genesis, let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and he gave them the power to generate life. John Paul II says in his document, Mulieris Dignitatum, which is on the dignity and vocation of women, he says that every act of generation in the entire created world so dogs do it, birds do it, bees do it. Um, but what, what do we do as human beings when we become one flesh that the dogs and the birds and the bees uh, can't do, don't do? We have freedom, right? Every act of generation, John Paul II says, participates in some way or reveals in some way or is an image in some way of the eternal generation in God. But when human beings generate new life, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he said, be fertile. We do so, or we are meant to do so, with freedom and in love, such that we are not only imaging uh, the Trinity here, but we are participating in the very life of the Trinity through the sacrament of marriage. It becomes a real participation in. This is only possible for human beings. So the generation of new life between squirrels 
in some way is a faint reminder in the created order that God is life-giving love, but squirrels can't love, right? Human beings have the capacity to love, yes. and that enables us to participate by means of a sacrament in the very life and love of the Trinity. Mm. And that thought that it is pleasing to the Lord, that that the union is a permanent mm, yes. bond. And why, why, why is it a permanent bond? Because precisely it's a participation in the life and love of God, and God's love is forever. Mm. It is not here today, gone tomorrow. It is, I am with you always. I will love you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's what makes marriage forever, because it's a real participation in the love of God. To say, I love you today, but I don't love you tomorrow, means you're not really participating in the love of God. To love as God loves is to love forever. Do we have that capacity as human beings? Yes, that's the astounding truth of what it means to be human. We have what theologians call the kapax dei, mm. the capacity for God. Uh, do we live up to that capacity? Uh, not always, obviously. We often fall short of that glory. We all fall short of that glory. But that capacity for God is not erased by sin. It's wounded, but it's still there. And the, the invitation of the Christian life is to learn how to open that kapax dei, that capacity for God, to God, so that God can infill us, so that we can love as we're called to love. You cannot give what you do not have. If the call of married life is to love as God loves, well, that means we have to have the love of God in us. Yes. And I imagine maybe some of these themes will come yeah. out a little bit more as yeah. we go through this nuptial blessing. Some of what you're saying, yeah. it's good. Uh, the very next part of the blessing it says, O God, who consecrated the bond of marriage by so great a mystery that in the wedding covenant, you foreshadowed the sacrament of Christ and his church. O God, by whom woman is joined to man, and the companionship they had in the beginning is endowed with the one blessing not forfeited by there original is, sin, nor washed away by the flood. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Let's pause there for a minute. God's original plan for man and woman has not been defeated by original sin. Mm. Where do we see this? Even in the first pages of Genesis, we see it in Genesis chapter 4, Right at the beginning of chapter 4, which is after the fall, we read, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. What does this tell us? John Paul unfolds this beautifully in the theology of the body. It tells us that sin has not conquered God's plan for man and woman. Sin has wounded that plan. We are now limping, if you will, in, in our relationship as, as husband and wife. We, we've been crippled in our ability to love divinely, and we are touched at a very deep level by that shame, right? Before sin, they were naked and felt no shame. Mm -hmm. After sin, shame enters the picture. What does that shame indicate? To put it in biblical terms, 
it indicates that the husband and wife have run out of wine. What does that mean? Wine in the scripture is a symbol of divine love poured out. In the beginning, they were naked without shame because, to use the image, they were drunk on God's wine, meaning they were filled to overflowing joy with the love of God. That's what flowed out of them, the very desire they had for one another when they were naked without shame, when they were drunk on God's wine. Erotic desire, eros, erotic desire, as God created it to be, is the desire to love divinely. In the beginning, eros expressed agape. Eros expressed divine sacrificial love. That's why they were naked without shame. Shame enters the picture because they have run out of wine. We could put it this way, eros has now run out of agape. And when Eros runs out of agape, rather than being sacrificial in, as a, according to God's original intention, Eros becomes selfish, it becomes inverted. Uh, Adam is now looking at Eve as a thing for his own pleasure, and vice versa. And, and the shame that they feel, they're saying, wait, don't look at me that way. I'm, I'm not meant to be treated as a thing. I'm meant to be loved. I'm meant to be honored. I'm meant to be seen. I'm meant to be known. I'm meant to be loved in the image of God. And so the wound in the male-female relationship is precisely that Eros has, ran, has run out of agape. But Christ has not abandoned us. Let's continue with the, the blessing, and, and I imagine we're going to mm-hmm. talk about this in just a minute. Here yeah. we go. Look now with favor on these your servants, joined together in marriage, who ask to be strengthened by your blessing. Send down on them the grace of the Holy Spirit. There it is. There's the new wine. Mm-hmm. And pour your love into their whoop, hearts whoop, whoop, whoop. that they may remain faithful in the marriage covenant. Let's just pause there right, th- right there. I love that. It's awesome. It is impossible to live marriage as we are called to live it unless we are drinking of that new wine. Where did Jesus perform his first miracle? At a wedding. What did he do? He restored the wine in superabundance. This prayer of the church, this nuptial blessing, this invoking of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the call of marriage. Can you read that one more time, Wendy, that, about the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Send down on them the grace of your Holy Spirit and pour your love into their hearts that they may remain faithful in the marriage covenant. There it is. Pour your love into their hearts. We cannot give what we do not have. Uh, All the struggles, all the tension, all the friction, all the pain in the male-female relationship is because we have run out of wine. But the good news of the gospel is that that wine has been restored and the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we can truly tap into that love. Wendy, you and I could give example after example after example of where you and I run up against our own human broken limitations, and it causes friction, it causes pain, it causes resentment, it causes anger. We know that story. 
we can also give example after example after example of learning the way, not that we do it perfectly, but we are learning the way of opening those places where we are out of wine to the Holy Spirit so that we can love one another with a supernatural love. Every day. It's for real. <laughs> yeah. And I'll just say this. If you are married and you're struggling in some way, what about with this line? That you may remain faithful. Hmm. Suppose you're experiencing temptation against faithfulness to your marriage covenant. I know there are so many different types of advice out there about, you know, how to have a strong marriage, how to, you know, prevent unfaithfulness. And I just want to direct all our listeners to this calling on the Holy Spirit and realizing that is what the church is telling us as we are entering into this bond. This is the power of faithfulness. In fact, the Holy Spirit himself is our bond. Preach it, Wendy. So preach it. Preach it. If you are struggling in this, please don't seek a million types of advice about getting into, oh, well, we just don't, we fell out of love or we don't have enough in common or, you know, it's, we, maybe we should have always had a date night, but we never really did. All that stuff is superficial. We're talking about God here, the Holy Spirit. That's where you need to go. That's what the church is telling us in this nuptial blessing, that Amen. it's the Holy Spirit that gives us this power to be faithful. Are there temptations? Are there specific things you might need to change in order to experience that faithfulness as a gift? Yes, but it all comes from the Holy Spirit. And who's your main intercessor here when you run into those places where you're out of wine? Mary. Mary That's was right. the woman at Cana who saw that the couple was out of wine and appealed to Jesus. They've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. Go to Mary. Go to her with those places in your heart where you have run out of wine and watch what happens. It goes on. May the grace of love and peace abide in your daughter and let her always follow the example of those holy women whose praises are sung in the scriptures. May her husband entrust his heart to her. Ooh, ooh, oh, that's a good one. I know. Let me, let me pause there okay. for a minute. <laughs> guys, guys, <laughs> this may be one of the biggest, I know it is one of the biggest challenges of marriage. I was about to say this may be the biggest challenge of marriage for a man. It really may be. Read that again, Wendy. Yeah, but can I just finish the okay, sentence? Sorry, okay, sorry. Okay. <laughs> May her husband entrust his heart to her so that acknowledging her as his equal and his joint heir to the life of grace, he may show her due honor and cherish her always with the love that Christ has for his church. Dang it. Wow. Good okay, this, this is what I wanted to speak into. Was that the end of the blessing? No. No, there's more. No, there's more. There's more. Okay. <laughs> Guys, to give your heart to your wife, you cannot give that which you are not in possession of. And I'm just going to speak for myself here. One of the biggest struggles in our marriage has been that I have not been in touch with my heart. 
And one of the essential ingredients to growing in our intimacy as husband and wife has been, it's just been an absolute necessity for me as a man to go on the journey of getting in touch with my heart. We live in a world that that teaches men to crush their own hearts. And the heart is, if we can put it this way, and I think it's fitting to do so, and I think this is why men crush their hearts, because the heart is, in a sense, the feminine dimension of our humanity. The heart is where we are in relation to God. And the heart in relation to God is always, for a creature, the heart is always in the posture of the bride, open and receptive to the, to the love of God. We live in a world that encourages men in particular, men and women, but men in particular, to crush their hearts. Don't be open. Don't be receptive. We think of it even as a threat to our masculine identity. Gentlemen, it is the key to our masculine identity, because to be truly a man means to be truly another Christ, and Christ from all eternity is receptive to the love of the Father. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Christ is eternally receiving that love so that he can pour it out. Guys, we cannot honor our wives if we're not in touch with our own hearts and honoring our own hearts and opening our own hearts, learning what it means to be in that receptive posture. If we are crushing our receptivity to God, which is to say, if we are crushing our hearts, we're also, in one way or another, crushing our wives. He who loves his wife loves himself, St. Paul says loves his own heart. We can go the other way. He who does not love his own heart does not love his own wife, because his own wife is a sign, a constant reminder to him of his own heart. Her femininity, her openness, her receptivity as bride is a constant reminder to the husband of what it means to be human, to be open and receptive to God. I am utterly convinced that the male fascination with the female form is really, at some level, a yearning to get in touch with his own heart and his own relationship with God. She will teach you, my brothers. Her femininity will teach you what it means to open to God. Those are scary places to go to, but we absolutely have mm -hmm. to go to those places if we are to learn, and it's right in the nuptial blessing, if we are to learn how to honor her as our equal. Mm. It's critical. Yeah. And Wendy, I know I have failed you in a million ways here. Uh, and, and I know you've shown me mercy in a million ways here. And I can look back at, at 26 and a half years of marriage, and I can see where I've failed, and I can see also where we together and individually have learned to open those painful places Yes. to this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which becomes oil on the wounds and the empowerment to grow and deepen the bond, which is, as you said, Wendy, the bond between us is the Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, we implore you, may these your servants hold fast to the faith and keep your commandments. Made one in the flesh, may they be blameless in all they do, 
and with the strength that comes from the gospel, may they bear true witness to Christ before all. May they be blessed with children and prove themselves virtuous parents who live to see their children's children and grant that reaching at last together the fullness of years for which they hope they may come to the life of the blessed in the kingdom of heaven through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Wow. You just Googled that, I assume, right? Yes, I did. So mm -hmm. uh, anybody can Google the nuptial blessing. How did, how did you put it in? Nuptial blessing of uh, the Catholic, of the Catholic Church, Mass? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so check that out. Google it. Look it up. Spend time with it. Rosie, I'm so glad you you had us reflect on that. So much more could be said. I mean, we go on for hours and hours and hours. I mean, there's no end to the to the mystery that that blessing is pointing us to. Hmm. I love that it's you know, I said at the beginning about God's heart for us. Like God's heart is not that we remain stuck in our sin and brokenness, but it's the blessing is on the journey together that that if this is our vocation marriage then our vocation is to help one another on this journey from brokenness to greater wholeness that that is made more possible for us by our sacrament amen that's why it's our vocation because we need the help of one another and there are going to be times in that journey when it doesn't feel like a blessing yeah but the words of this are encouraging us and giving us hope that the Lord cares about us. He cares about our unity and our growth and our overcoming of sin in our lives and, and being a light in this world, the bearing witness to Christ before all. It's very, very encouraging and powerful. I want to say a word and close here about the role of the sacrament of confession in married life. Hmm. There was a line there may the spouses remain blameless mm. before Christ. Uh, hello, who's going to remain blameless? Nobody in one sense. But this is where the sacrament of confession is essential to living out married life, because the sacrament of confession is where we bring all the things in our lives and including our marriages where we are running out of wine, where we have run out of wine, bring that to the confessional because the grace that comes in the confessional, we could say is truly the, the outpouring of that new wine. Obviously that comes to fulfillment in the Eucharist where the, the wine becomes the blood of Christ. But confession is where we dispose our hearts to receive the fullness of the Eucharist. And that Eucharist is what empowers us to love as we're called to love as husband and wife. Uh, in, in one sense, no one's going to be blameless here. But if we are regularly going to confession, we what does the Lord do with our sins in the confessional? As far as the East is from the West, so are your sins from you. That's how we live out that call. Not that, not that we become without blame, but that we take where we where blame is ours, where, where we have fallen, where we have sinned, we go with confidence to the sacrament of confession, and we receive the grace through that sacrament to become more and more the men and women we are created to be. I, I just, I simply cannot comprehend married life without the sacrament of confession, because the number one ingredient of a successful marriage is mercy. 
and where do we receive that mercy and where are we empowered to show it to one another? The sacrament of confession. Mm. Yes. So again, much more could be said, but we don't have time to say it in our short little format podcast. We hope you have been blessed by what you've heard. Rosie, thank you again for that wonderful question. If you know somebody who needs to be blessed by this podcast, please hit that share button and help us get this message out to an ever-growing audience. We'd be so grateful. Thank you for being our faithful listeners. Thank you if you're a new listener. Keep tuning in and, and check out the old episodes that we have. And remember, always you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they're not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.